happy holidays, everyone. It's Mary. Over the next few days, we're going to be rebroadcasting episodes that stuck with us this year. And we'll check back in with a few of our guests and see how their sagas ended. We wanted to start by considering the biggest story of the year, the pandemic, which reshaped the way most of us live and caused so many people to die. The very first interview we did about COVID, it was at the beginning of March, one of the last conversations I had with anyone in person. At the time, we knew a little bit about the coronavirus, but not how it would upend our world. But Peter Doshak, this episode's guest, he did. Yeah, when did you first hear about what was happening in Wuhan with this outbreak? Oh, I know exactly when. It was New Year's Eve. It was during the day. This is Peter Dashak. He's a zoologist, lives in New York, works in China. We were following rumors on the internet in China about this outbreak. Um, and I, I got these translated internet sites that were saying, not only is it um, a new virus, it's a coronavirus. So I think people knew back then. Coronavirus is one of Peter's areas of expertise. He's been studying how infections like this new one, COVID-19, move. They start out in an animal, like, say, a bat. Then they jump, the way this one did. You know, the minute we got the sequence for, that was released, we quickly matched that up and showed that it was a bat virus. And not only that, it's very close to the group we've been working on. So, you know, your emotion then is, is excitement in a way, because this is exactly what you've been saying is going to happen. And then fear that our lives are going to be, you know, turned upside down and people are going to die, which is exactly what's happening right now. If you were looking at this coronavirus outbreak and seeing a game of whack-a-mole with doctors all around the world urgently trying to quash this virus, Peter, he sees it differently. He sees a game of chess with patterns and predictability. A few years back, Peter was working with the World Health Organization, plotting out what the next global pandemic could look like, when he and some other scientists came up with the idea of disease X. Disease X would hit this kind of epidemiological sweet spot. It would transmit easily from person to person. It would be deadly, but not too deadly. So it's going to be a disease that's slightly more fatal than flu. It's going to be a disease that spreads through global air travel. It's going to be a disease with kind of hidden symptoms early on that maybe mimic another disease that we're used to so we don't go and get tested. This sounds just like COVID. Yeah, it's exactly like COVID-19. And, and that's exactly the scenario we were getting ready for. But even though doctors like Peter knew this virus was coming, he says, we didn't get ready. Not soon enough. I was listening to some experts talk about COVID and they were, they were referring to it as a black swan. They were saying, yeah. which is, of course, this, this phrase, it means an unexpected event yeah. that, that couldn't be anticipated. Yeah. yeah, that really kind of, you know, there's a lot of this black swan talk out there. These are not black swan events. We've been talking about them for 15 years and saying not only are pandemics increasing in frequency, we're going to get more of them more often. They're getting bigger. China is right in the middle of a coronavirus hotspot. That's why we were there for 15 years working on these viruses. Today on the show, Peter says even when this outbreak is contained, it's not going to be the last. But if we pay close attention to what's happening right now, next time, it could be different. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us.
Peter Daschuk runs a nonprofit called Eco Health Alliance, which tracks illnesses that start in wildlife. It's the kind of organization you might not know very much about until an outbreak like this one, when suddenly the data they collect is really important. So there are new meetings every, every week now. We've got a WHO one-hour phone call with all the folks from around the world. We've got an NIH one-hour phone call. National Academies are setting up committees to analyze what's going on. So you want to get involved and try and do everything you can. And we're not even, you know, we're not the groups that are producing test kits and vaccines and doing the lab work. I mean, they're incredibly busy. Peter knows how hard it can be to convince people to pay attention to the causes of outbreaks. When Peter was training, he was more interested in the animals that harbor pathogens rather than the pathogens themselves. And, you know, I went to college. I did zoology back then, it was called. And in the final year, you've got to do a research project. And I was kind of late that morning to the sign-on list and all the good ones had gone. (laughs) And I got lumbered with parasites of reptiles. Oh, God, this is so boring. It was actually fascinating. I really got into this idea that there are these organisms that live within others and take the nutrients away and use that and then spread. And it's Mm. this sort of machine-like way that they do that that I find absolutely fascinating. And and the idea that we are just, to them, another animal. It's so interesting. I love that idea that, like, we're just hosts to them. Well, you know, the, it's it's worse than that. And they, they really don't want to kill us, actually. It's not to their, you know, evolutionary advantage to kill the host. But if they can move swiftly through a global population, they've achieved their goal. And that's exactly what COVID-19 is doing now. Tens of thousands of people have been diagnosed with this disease worldwide. Mm. More than 3,000 deaths. And very few in the U.S., but I wonder if you think we actually know how many are in the U.S. Because it's been reported that we're not really testing that much. And of course, that, that might change in the next few days, but we haven't been until now. Well, first of all, we never know. I mean, in most outbreaks, you, you never really know at the time the outbreak is, is beginning what the true caseload out in the environment is. All, all you can see are the people who come to hospital and get tested and get diagnosed. And people with mild infections or even people who are pretty sick and just don't make it in poor communities, communities that have trouble traveling, you don't see them. So there will be many more cases out there right now in the States. That's pretty clear. And what's interesting is because we've been slow to start testing, over the next few days when people are rolling out those test kits, we're going to find a lot of these and it's going to look like this thing is spreading out of control. Well, the truth is it's already been there probably and we're now finding that out. Hmm. Is this kind of chaos with a virus like this, is it unexpected? No, it's exactly what you'd expect. Um, Look, I, I remember traveling through Singapore airport during the SARS outbreak and it was just empty. And very surprising. And, you know, there was me and a few others coming off the plane and to a quiet, empty airport. We see a lot of those strange, surreal scenes going on. And things that you don't expect to happen. Schools being closed for a month in Japan. You know, we're looking at the Olympics. We've seen so many conferences and meetings closed. I wouldn't be surprised if the Olympics gets closed down because of this. Diseases have an impact and they're often quite scary at the time. By this point... Peter's seen enough outbreaks that he feels like he knows how this story goes. First, there's the panic, the search for something or someone to blame. In the case of this coronavirus, for a little while, there was a story that the outbreak got its start at a local food market in Wuhan. But stories like this, Peter says, they can get in the way of the bigger picture. 
more and more people are living and working closer and closer to wildlife. It isn't just about one or two individuals putting people at risk. The risk also comes from clear-cutting rainforests, remote mining, even widespread suburbanization. Yeah, I would say we are the cause of almost all emerging diseases. I mean, What do you mean when you say that? Well, we're not doing it on purpose, but we just uh, it's our everyday way of going about business on the planet that seems to be driving this. And the the three really big things that drive these are places on the planet where there's lots of wildlife diversity because they carry viruses, uh, some of which can become pandemic in us. And um, places where human population is really dense and growing and because our contact with wildlife is higher, so there's more chance for the viruses to get into us. So where humans are bumping up yeah. against these very diverse ecosystems. And it's the way we bump up. So we, we found that things like land use change, deforestation, road building, mining, agricultural intensification, they're the reason that we push ourselves into wildlife habitat and get infected. So your group, the EcoHealth Alliance, you've actually gone into these areas where humans and animals are meeting. You've started testing the animals, testing the humans. You've created a virus library. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about what, about what you've found once you started testing everyone and just sort of looking around like what's normal here? Like what's going on? Well, you know, we, we work in countries in these emergency hotspots and we Try to do this in a sensitive way, culturally sensitive way, because a lot of the things that are going on that are, that are clearly high risk are a real deep part of people's culture. So changing that is going to be really tough. Um, in communities in southwest China, we asked people about what interaction they had with wildlife, and we found that there's a higher risk of people have contact with wildlife and eat wildlife of them getting respiratory disease. Then we've got other, other viruses in other parts of the world that are also spilling over at a background rate. We need to look at that. We need to understand more about that and, and really start to work with those, those people on the front line. They're vulnerable communities that need to understand the health risks and we can work with them to try and change behavior slowly and gradually so it's safer. Hmm. Well, part of what I think is so interesting about the work you're doing is that you're building this case that our whole system right now, the way we interact with the environment, the economic sort of engine that's driving us is part of the cause of these pandemics. I never hear it talked about like that mm. on cable news. Yeah. Why? We've gotten used to this idea that we're in a you know, reductionist strategy to deal with things. We, we find this virus, we learn everything about the molecules on the surface. We have really cool high-tech solutions to design vaccines and produce them. The trouble is it doesn't really work hmm. quick enough to actually deal with an outbreak. These outbreaks are moving now in a matter of days. We saw SARS emerge after two months and spread globally. This one took two weeks. We haven't got time to develop vaccines and drugs, but the public demand it and expect it. Peter estimates there are over a million viruses like COVID-19 out there. He and his group, they have found 500 different coronaviruses in bats alone. But it took them 10 years to do that work. Uh, that's what we need to do. We need to do that at a scale so we discover all the rest of those viruses. It's but achievable. gosh, it just sounds like 
it would take forever if it yeah. took you 10 years to find 500. Well, you, then that's just one group. We need m many more groups in many more regions doing this work. We then need to get those sequences into the hands of the vaccine designers because what's the point in, in spending billions of dollars designing a vaccine to SARS if the one that emerges this year is 20% different and the vaccine doesn't work? So let's have vaccines across the whole group. You know, we've heard about the universal flu vaccine. Let's have a universal coronavirus vaccine. Let's have a universal Ebola virus vaccine. Um, I, I think that's common sense. But getting governments to commit to that seems really challenging. I mean, yeah, I've, true. <laughs> <laughs> I've covered the flu before. And I think every virologist I speak to thinks that a universal flu vaccine is the solution rather than what we do now, which is hypothesize about what's going to be the strain. And we give you what yeah. we think will work. And, you know, we haven't really tested it. And we'll see afterwards how well we did. But the truth is it costs billions of dollars. And there's not a manufacturer who's like, sign me up for that. Well, there's, the NIH are working on it. And the reason they're working on it is there are a couple of really good voices there that are advocates for that strategy. We need those voices out there that advocate for dealing with pandemics as a process, not with individual pathogens. And it's not just vaccines and drugs. I mean, we also have the basic public health message of getting out there into rural communities that are in the front line and helping them reduce risk talking to companies that are building roads to new mining facilities and talking about building a clinic. We're doing that. And, and as we think about a more sustainable approach to doing business, this should be part of sustainability, sustainability for health and the environment. Someone who wrote about you last week said you had this calm frustration <laughs> That's great. Do you still feel like that? Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly frustrated by it. Yeah, it's actually true. I don't know who wrote that, but they're right. You know, look, um, what's frustrating is telling people repeatedly we will see more and more frequent pandemics and then not seeing much change to get ready for that. That's the frustrating part. But you've got to carry on. You've got to just keep fighting forwards. And even now... A lot of us are in the middle of this outbreak. I mean, we're in New York getting ready for the chaos over the next few weeks. And we're already saying, well, in two years, when this is kind of we're used to this one, are we then going to be getting ready for the next one? You know, at some point you get more cynical and you think we forget too easily. And that's a frustration. We need to be really getting ready for these things. You say we're getting ready for the chaos in the next few weeks. Do you think there's going to be chaos in the next few weeks? Um, it's, it depends. Yeah. I mean, there's going to be chaos at certain levels. I mean, for sure, uh, as all of us eventually start to know someone who's been infected, no matter how logical you are, you start to get some fear in there and you think, well, how did I make contact? Am I at risk? What am I doing wrong? Um, I think in some cases, there's going to be real significant outbreaks uh, that are just seeded and moving forwards. And, and we, when we get to find out about them, they're going to be pretty hard to uh, control. You know, there was this piece in The Times this weekend where the writer was advocating for more aggressive action. He was basically saying, listen, in 1918, when we had a flu mm. pandemic, you know, the places that really shut things down, closed the schools, closed the ball games, you know, just had people wearing masks, keeping their distance from each other, closing ports if necessary. They were the ones that had 
less of an impact. Do you think we'll need to get that aggressive in the United States? I, I think we're going to see things happen that we didn't expect would happen. I think we're going to see uh, personal invasion of our um, daily lives in a way that we've not seen it for a long time. And some people will disagree, and that will lead to conflict. And I think that's going to be interesting to see how far will public health services go to actually uh, force people to change behaviour. Uh, and, and don't forget, we've got to get ready for the long term here. Um, school closures uh, might work to delay things for a few days or weeks, but at some point, this thing is probably going to be around in our human population for a couple of years, maybe indefinitely. So at some point, we have to get back to a more or less normal society with schools and businesses and global trade and travel. And I really hope it's a wake-up call. I really hope that we start to get more proactive on this. But again, let's talk in two years and see if that really happened. Peter Daszak, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. There were enough updates to Peter's story that we decided not to wait a couple years to call him back. In fact, you might have heard Peter's name over the last few months, or at least heard about his research. Thank you, Mr. President. U.S. intelligence is saying this week that the coronavirus likely came from a level four lab in Wuhan. This was back at the end of April. A conservative news outlet asked President Trump why U.S. aid was going to a lab in China, a lab that Peter's group collaborates with. There's also another report that the NIH under the Obama... I'm making a cup of tea or something, and I I heard a, a reporter say a grant to Wuhan. I thought, is that my grant? Gave that lab $3.7 million in a grant. Why would the U.S. give a grant like that to China? It can't be our grant. And I heard, the, I heard Trump respond, you know, you get a sort of sinking feeling, what the heck is going on? And Trump responded and said, we, we know about it, we, we're um, working on that, we will end it. Uh, we will end that grant very quickly, but... It was- and then pretty quickly after, as I think by Monday, I got a letter saying we're terminating the grant, which is, you know, it's a disgrace, is the truth of it. From the start of this pandemic, there have been these rumors and theories that COVID originated or escaped from a lab in Wuhan. They have been thoroughly debunked, but Peter's research was a casualty of all that disinformation. The irony being, some of the work Dashek's team had been doing was essential to testing COVID therapeutics, including remdesivir, the drug President Trump himself was treated with when he was hospitalized back in October. It sickens me that the work that goes into the drugs that these people then rely on to save their lives is the same work they're undermining with conspiracy theories and lies and cancelling. Now, Dashek and his organization have moved on. He's leading a task force to figure out more precisely how COVID-19 came to be, what human interactions with nature led to it jumping species, and what actions or inaction by governmental bodies allowed it to get out of control. He thinks the way forward is more proactive, more collaborative, less political. But he says this way, it requires leadership. Well, here's what we need. We need people with metal in positions of directorship. What we've seen with COVID is while we're sat waiting for a vaccine, hundreds of thousands of people have died. And that's not a strategy. Let's get involved and engage and and do this. Um, It's not rocket science. It's pretty straightforward. 
Peter Daschok is the president of the EcoHealth Alliance. And that's the show. We'll be back bringing you fresh new episodes of What Next starting January 4th. Until then, I hope you get some time off, get some time to recharge. This episode of What Next was produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, Daniel Hewitt, and Mara Silvers. We had a ton of help getting it ready for rebroadcast from Franny Kelly. This show gets better every day because of Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. And I'm Mary Harris. I'll be back in this feed with another favorite episode of What Next tomorrow. <laughs>